0: My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener... The Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is...
1: Slam Home. Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one
2: of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach the suburban noise of night. There's a
3: question asked
4: in one naked moment
2: never I am...
5: As fireflies the
0: this week's Slamcast was recorded on February 27th, 2001, and there's nothing really for me to talk about. I hosted this show, so the feature poets are introduced by me, so there's really nothing for me to talk about right now. Maybe I'll have something interesting to say next week. I hope you enjoy. Mm-hmm.
6: It echoed with drunken warp off the concave mirrors of the bar, all humor lost in the distortion. She struggled to spit it out, what with everything going in, and the men she didn't need were giving her the space she wanted to need. But I just didn't feel like moving, spot welded to my plastic seat with the panoramic view. When she tried to scrape past me, she couldn't find the energy to overcome the friction. I don't need no man, bounced from the bartender when he finally cut her off, nodding over at me. He winked and grinned as I closed her tab, our little secret. I don't need no man, I got everything under control, she said when I reached down to help her up the second time. I let her drink off my beer the rest of the night. She smoked my cigarettes and touched my arm and spit more words at me. I don't really need anything, she said once, in a tone without performance, looking up and into my eyes for the first time all night. I broke from the web of capillary truth in the whites of her stare, wishing I didn't have to believe her, wishing for an easier world where nobody ever spoke. The bartender said she couldn't stay if she passed out. He gave me her address and winked again with an open mouth like a wet hole. She's got rug burn with no man's name on it, the hole said. And the men she didn't need laughed as one man. I drove her home and helped her up the stairs. She was deceptively light. I undressed her for bed, half looking for scars. Asleep, she was so much Younger. When I leaned over to tuck her in, she woke and strained to raise her head, holding my cheek with a cold, smooth hand, pressing her sticky mouth hard to the base of my neck. I don't need no man, she whispered and turned away to cradle her pillow lover. I stood at the edge of the bed and watched her breathe in rhythm as she fell back to her child's sleep. The alcohol in her kiss evaporated more quickly than the rest of it, which lingered, condensing on my throat for what seemed like a long while.
0: okay angela wasn't ready so she goes to the end of the line and i draw two more names out of the bucket and on we go all right then our next two performers will be bill and then charlie are you guys ready come on
7: Uh, this piece is entitled, Voices Unheard. The progress machine knows no limits to human suffering. It is sleek and modern, uncaring, and much too big for anyone to see all at once. We can only look through its insect eyes at the segmented worlds of CBS, CNN, ABC, and NBC, at the empty stares of the very poor, the street riots in Jerusalem, killer floods and hurricanes, all symbols to be played for our awe and entertainment. And the glittering sign on the third world reads, We'll work for food, or even another chance to breathe polluted air, drink sewer water, or sleep under one of the highway overpasses of Rio, Hong Kong, or Chicago, where each night the streets are scraped clean of the garbage, and there's nothing left for the homeless but the words of right-wing Christians who are not their brother's keepers. No, the progress machine does not stop for human beings or any living thing. It's a primal urge, moving at light speed, fueled by cosmic momentum and pure thought. Its genetic makeup is a digital code, a simple binary pipeline of random signals alternating between life and death, between life and death, flashing on off, on off, on off. It has no eyes or antennae yet. It never fails in its task of finding the cheapest, most efficient way of getting all that really cool stuff that we just can't do without in this game of life. It's a true lord of the flies, always moving between birth and decay, yet its sleek lines are seductive and sexy, full of excitement and the promise for a better tomorrow. It's a shiny red sports car rocketing down your street at 100 miles an hour with no brakes, like that phantom blip on your radar screen moving east and west, quietly hauling cattle, Peruvian plums, pig iron and lumber, gliding across flattened steel and stone meridians that rest on the forgotten bones of buffalo, of Indians, of African and Chinese slaves. When you win the wars, you never have to explain or say you're sorry. It's always about winning because nobody scrutinizes the winners of the human race. Instead, we build our sciences around examining its losers. If they break stride or show bad form, we put them in prisons or special ed or randomly test them for drug use low IQ or bad genes, for anything but a conscience. At times they'll get by all of a society's filters and get right in our face. They usually show up on Oprah to tell about their peculiar tragedies, maybe some incest or a sex change gone awry. They also like to be on America's Funniest Home Videos with their handheld camcorder shots of crotch-sniffing dogs or other examples of that slapstick culture that we all find so colorful, so endearingly inferior. My Indian friend calls this show America's funny as white people. And yes, the spin doctors do make house calls. You can hear them between the primetime laugh tracks, partying with all those star fuckers and MTV fashion hogs. They whisper that having fun is all that really matters. And besides, talking about the third world all the time is such a downer. It's really not our problem. The Nikes we bought were made in Asia, but so what? It's okay because the glue used to make them is only toxic when it's wet. So not to worry. A team of American businessmen in their fresh tropical suits tour a Malaysian shoe factory. They hold their breaths while pretending not to as they smile fondly at the young Malaysian girls in their thin blue smocks and linen face masks. The girls busily work around the glue pots, carefully attaching tongues and soles like doctors assembling a patient. They were told to be silent and to work with joy, or they will lose their jobs and be forced out into the streets to survive. Women who live in the third world carry the burden of everyone's poverty. You won't see them on Jerry Springer or Rush Limbaugh or any TV show because silent voices are never heard. At Wounded Knee, The Trail of Tears, Gettysburg, Little Rock, me and Watts, we Americans forgot how we drew first blood while on the progress machine, how we started as a swelling, idealistic nation of warriors and builders and became instead a nation of consumers technicians and couch potatoes, easily hypnotized by professional sports, artificial power, or money, too exhausted to feel outrage, and too numb to move away from the glare of the headlights. And the glittering sign on the third world reads, relax America, we just want to be like you. So in Brazil, Central America, and Mexico, thousands of Indians secretly vanished, are murdered in the name of progress. Whole tribes are swallowed up by the night their silent disappearance hidden by the felling of trees and the quiet death of the rainforest. Now lost forever in the promise of fresh mahogany and feed corn. Thank you.
8: <laughs> I call this Ellucinian Psalm. your milk pretty please I need your milk to make me some cheese give me your grapes pretty please I need your grapes to make us some wine to make us some wine to make us some wine. some grain to make me some bread First time I played that one. of paint, mm-hmm. devils don't care about dashboard, saints, better drive fast, get us <laughs> <laughs> little devil, little devils little
9: Thank you.
10: I need to change my image. Everyone thinks I am so proper, always doing the right thing. No danger to society at all. I was the one the girls brought back to talk to their parents while they slipped out the back door to make out with some hair-slicked-back-chopper-riding dude named Spike or Slash. I wanted to be that guy. I even bought myself a black leather jacket and got my ear pierced. But I got laughed out of every biker bar from Detroit to San Antonio, and I know why. It's so easy to see the source of all my misery, from getting picked last to play basketball to, never, to standing on the wall at the high school dances. I never learned to smoke. That's right. Smoking would have changed my life. If only I hadn't waved that first cigarette away from me at 13, I would have been invited to all the parties and gone out with all the girls, even Serena Enix. Don't tell me about the Surgeon General, secret tobacco conspiracies, and the long-term effects of inhaling nicotine and tar into my lungs, because I know what every teenager knows. Smoking is Cool. Smoking is cool like James Dean in a leather jacket and a white t-shirt with a pack of cigs rolled in the sleeve. Smoking cool is cool like all the kids skipping class and hanging out across the street at the pizza joint playing pinball. Smoking is cool like my grandpa, two packs a day for 70 years, puffing away until the very last day when he fell off his tractor in the cherry orchards. And smoking is sexy... Don't tell me it's not. Smoking is sexy like that blondes blowing smoke rings, smoke rings within smoke rings, and if she can do that with her mouth. Smoking is sexy like ex- exhaling through your mouth and inhaling through your nose. Smoking is sexy I could watch for days. And all the uncool and unsexy government officials have banned smoking because they were tired of being the uncool ones. But their evil plans backfired. Bans on smoking have made smoking even more cool. Cool like the kids cutting class cool. Smoking in the boys' room cool. Smokers on smoke breaks have formed a secret club that I want to join. Can I? Can I? I won't even tell the secret password. The mysteries of the earth are unveiled outside offices and non-smoking cafes. Politicians are called down in clever ways. World hunger is solved. If everyone on this planet smoked, peace would suddenly break out. The Russians would be bumming cigarettes from the Chinese. Saddam Hussein would ask Bush for a light, too. At 31, is it too late for me? Can I hope to catch up to two packs a day? I heard it's really hard to start smoking hot turkey. I'm thinking about working up to it by getting the patch. Step one, step two, step three. Watch me, I'm smoking now. Smoking is cool, and I don't need Joe Camel, or you've come a long way, baby, to let me know. Can you feel a calming buzz now? Can you feel the industry souped up nicotine in your veins? Can you feel that tar pleasure? Come on now. Smoking is cool.
2: Okay, this is my first time ever reading a poem. This the first poem I've ever written. (laughs) It's called The Key. You're sweet and seductive, thinking you can charm me. With your smooth talking, your love is a whisper to me. For I am strong, a woman at whole, filled with pride. Your love cannot get to me. Here I am, a chassis belt lies, with a broken lock and a lost key. Your love can never have me. Someday, my prince will arrive with the key, and he will love me for me. My key is buried amongst heavy vines, where it is hard to find. When the key arrives, I will know he is mine, for no love will hurt me or make me cry. The wait seems so long, days, weeks, and years, but being alone isn't so bad, for my lost key will return with the love I used to have.
11: by Jewel Shear. At the highest point on Squirrel Hill, wind was whistling, whistling a song my heart obeyed. At the highest point on Squirrel Hill, I am counting backwards. I suppose I'm counting back the days From the highest point on Squirrel Hill I see everything Every little piece becomes complete I look out the way I never looked In childhood days When all my hanging head saw was my feet Walking a changing line, like the one between the sea and shore. I use that memory now, for an easy smile. My heart goes rushing through those open doors. When I'm falling like the silent stone, resistance fails. Till I dream I'm on that hill again. When I'm falling like the silent stone, resistance fails. Till I wish from out of God's sky here I'll land. Walking a changing line like the one between the sea and shore, I use that rushing through those open doors. My heart goes rushing through those open doors. Oh, what, what
9: an experience. What an experience. I feel cheated of my blackness. I even feel anger. I even feel anger. I even feel anger and envy, almost hate, for the white in me. And I want to holler at my mother because she was doing her best. Her best, but, but not my best, but what was my best. I feel cheated. And I'm angry because I can't see the black in me, and I can't feel the black in me. And to think one time I took pride in not sounding black. And now my heart bleeds to be free of this white facade and all her faces. And will the real me stand up? Stand up and be counted among all the rest. Not set apart. Not labeled. For what? My ego is not vain. Only my pride. But which one? The black or the white one? My heart cries out to my many brothers and sisters who were forced in their ignorance to become somebody, but who? We are not white, or are we? We look black, we sound white, we look out of black faces through white perspectives, and somewhere deep in our souls we find the rhythm, we hear the drum, we rock on the beat, yet something is missing. Something that doesn't allow us to fit black or white. So who the hell are we? Help us. We hurt. Wade in the water.
4: Wade in the water,
9: children. Wade in the water. God's gonna trouble. Through flooded nights we wandered, wading through the water.
12: I was following forever, but ever hiding my face from the consequences of eternity, eternally hiding from the face of the Father while the banks of my mind become lined with the timeless faces of my ancestors. Yahweh, the father of El Shaddai, the father of the son, who fathered Adam, who fathered me. The son of Adam, I am. I am not able. I am not able to find my reflection in the faces of the clocks dangling from the fingers of my forefathers. Yet time insists that I exist in the shadows of my son. I need to be washed in the waves of this moment, inhale tides and drown before tomorrow. I want to die after the sunset and live before the moon, resurrect too soon. I want to stand under earth signs and understand earth signs and recognize the signs of tomorrow. Rearrange constellations reflected in the the eyes of white-robed saints who crowd the banks for my drowning. They hold my head under the surface of silence where God whispers prophecies of violence and atonement. And as I rise, this moment drips from my beard and runs down my chest and mingles with the sweat of Lazarus.
9: in the water trouble the
4: water
3: all right dude y'all ain't acceptable tonight you're not loud you're not drunk so i decided to wake you up all right So I'm counting 42s on 94 to 55, and I'm following 23 all the way to St. Louis. We're passing through populated desolation where me- we memorialize bloodshed, and realization comes with every rusted trail- trailer screaming that this is the true America. Dilapidated shacks and semis carrying cows straight to our dinner plates, killed just for you. And I don't know what disturbs me more that most Indians don't have running water or that Californians do. And if you're going to San Francisco, eat sushi and leave. Don't talk to the locals. Their lives read like subtitles on a Woody Allen film. They're trying to shove modems up my ass with a dot-com chaser. And it may have been in Eden once, but somebody ate the apple, and now when you fall in San Francisco, it's all over. There's a gap on the corner of Hate Ashbury and a hippie chick junkie trying to sell me a dime bag at the d- bus stop. This is what a America is. Silicon Valley and rolling blackouts, one vortex with more money than the entire Southwest. There are billboards for Indian reservations littering the landscape with fields of burned out Chevys, while in Frisco, they pay $1,300 a month for a garden apartment and consider themselves lucky. They get the Redwoods and we get Ford fucking motor credit. I want the internet to crash so I can personally smash every fucking palm pilot, break the chains that bind yuppies and money, and educate our children for real. Fuck school vouchers, take them to Moriarty, Arizona. Show them real poverty. Show them Amarillo, Texas. Show them the Golden Gate Park where 19-year-old children sleep beneath bridges huddled with refugees from 1969. And it ain't long, beautiful hair anymore, baby. Ask them where their next meal is coming from. This is the true America. I found more integrity in Vegas than I did in Berkeley. At least they're honest about their hypocrisy. So I'm counting 23s on 80 to 94, and I'm following 42 all the way home through mountains and farmlands, and I'm happy to be back in the Midwest because I went to San Francisco, and no one wear flowers in their hair.
5: Voice, blaring at you like a freak of hormonal imbalance. That voice, a leftover 80s mutation of the voice that used to urge you to come out to US-131 Martin Dragway, except leaner, meaner, with more growth hormones than all the steers in Texas. A voice holding and pumped up like advanced steroid psychosis.
13: In an FBI sniper's earpiece, a quiet voice says, take them. And the need for a trial is sidestepped.
5: That voice, who cares if it makes me sound like an old alcoholic? It scares off the wimps. It's the sound of power.
13: In a hushed boardroom, the wrecking of 10,000 lives is calmly discussed.
5: That voice can only be punctuated with exclamation points. It doesn't ask questions. It tells you where to go, what
13: to do, and it's taking no prisoners. Genetically targeted bioweapons are developed in silence. Sure, that voice
5: hurts your throat, but you can almost feel your balls growing. That voice goes well with drunkenness. It's louder than hell.
13: The quiet click of two keys arms a nuclear missile.
5: That voice knows how to party. It's drawing in the ladies. It's the voice that's telling you to come on down for kickboxing, monster trucks, tattoos and body piercing, wrestling, Harleys,
13: if you're bad enough. The stroke of a pen allows genocide to continue. That voice can sell anything.
5: Overweight beefcake and makeup and spandex, poorly engineered obsolete technology, family blood sport entertainment, the toughest flowers in the Midwest, dangerous roses, full-bore macho daffodils, and no pansies anywhere. Feminine hygiene products. Yes, ladies, this disposable douche is the irrigator. It dominates the
13: competition while underground toxic waste leeches into the water table without a sound. That voice is distraction,
5: sounding like a cartoon god, a voice we hope reminds you of your dad, to make you childlike and pliable, by like champions at our super blowout, if you dare. Only the fittest will survive, but it's like the marine combat veterans say,
13: You never worry about the rounds you hear. You worry about the one you don't hear.
1: I want to be a Charlie's Angel. I want to drive a lipstick cherry red Camaro fully loaded with a communications control module, weapons arsenal, and a vanity mirror. I want to wear a red racing suit with silver stripes and all-American pledge allegiance to the flag star, suggestively lining the zipper of my trademark bosom. Even a CA smile is a weapon copyrighted and guaranteed to entrance any man into a four-day lost-my-wits while drinking too many olive martinis string bikini stupor. And the shoes, five-inch lethal spikes of super-sexy em to you kick-ass action. Hee ya! And the leather pants, Oh, the gloriously skin-tight, slick-like-a-slip-and-slide on a steamy hot July, leather pants. Seam-lined slacks accentuating every swish, dip, and curve, carefully crafted to clean comfortably while performing karate, kung fu, judo, and jiu-jitsu. That's right, a Charlie's angel knows how to move. She can do the Ricky Martin rumba and rummage into ruthless man shorts, mambo with a margarita and her nimble manicured fingers, and an information matrix hid carefully beneath her da- Crimson Donna Karen cocktail dress. Tango with a pistol wedge precariously between her perky powdered breasts. A CA is the real thing. No plastic surgery, saline inserts, facelifts, tummy tucks, wonder bra. A 110 pound Wonder Woman minus the invisible jet and magic lasso. She can climb a fence faster than a cat in heat, triple flip and somersault like a Mar- like Mary Lou Retton on an Olympic sweep attack, swoop a helicopter while applying mascara and a little pink eyeshadow below the brow line to accentuate the line of her cheeks, scale a skyscraper and spandex, ride a road hog like a Harley Davidson honey with a black leather helmet and a scowl to boot. Jump a jet ski over a mountain of moguls and slide into the ski lodge, locked, loaded, and ready to rumble. This is it. Hands up. You're under arrest for resisting an officer. Resist? Resist this? Spread him, sucker. Yeah, I mean you. Move it. Pat him down and check him for any hard weapons. She is a diva of disguises, the darling of drug deals, the goddess of gallery heists, the bombshell babe of bank robberies and bomb threats, the princess of the police force. Danger is a lollipop in a CA's mouth. She relishes it and begs for another lick. So move over, James Bond, Dick Tracy Austin Powers. Action has never been this graceful, this arabesque, this scantily clad. A Charlie's angel always gets her man.
10: I grew up to be a polite shy boy I spoke when spoken to when was otherwise invisible that's how they liked us those days I would chew each mouthful ten times carefully before swallowing I went to Sunday school I learned to be meek in obedience And in our schools and churches and at dinner tables, our parents were teaching us the American mantra, the American prayer whispered while moving beads around and around and around our necks. Everything in moderation, a penny saved is a penny earned. Nothing to excess, the early bird gets the worm. Everything in moderation, a stitch in time saves nine. Nothing to excess, everything in moderation, nothing to excess. I believed them, those lying bastards. How could I not? They were so good at their half-truths told with virtuous grins. I didn't know what they did behind their doors while we slept, dreaming our cavity-filled sugar-plum dreams. I didn't know about the empty bottles of gin, the wife-swapping, the lines of cocaine on burnished mirrors. I didn't know until one night when I woke thirsty and padded in my footy pajamas to our den. I threw open the door and surprised them all. Mom and Dad, the mayor, Patches the Clown, Ross Perot, Olivia Newton-John. There were leather and whips and double-ended dildos everywhere. I turned and ran, but it was too late. They'd already seen me. They turned their dogs on me, my own parents. They tore my arms and legs from my body. They ate my flesh, and I'd laid there, bloody pulp of a disillusioned child for 20 years. I laid there until someone finally had mercy on me, some good Samaritan passing by long enough to pour whiskey down my throat and reattach my long-lost dick. And I jumped from the earth a new man. But I was more than a man. I was a man to the manth power. No more moderation. I had become the embodiment of divine excess. I became a drunk and a lecher and developed a big pot belly. And I was alive. From now on, if you please, call me Dionysus. I am a man. My new motto is to do nothing in moderation. Do everything to excess. Drink too much coffee, too much beer, too much wine, too much liquor. Sobriety is for the weaklings who can't handle their booze. Eat too much food, red meat, more red meat. Give me red meat, cold and raw. I want blood dripping from my mouth and pooling in my navel. I like my arteries clogged in yellow. If you can't handle the beef, get out of the kitchen and have too much sex. There is no such thing as too much sex. I won't be satisfied until the whole world is one orgiistic mound of quivering flesh. I want to see... Three billion pairs of legs wrapped around three billion necks. Thirty billion fingers entwined in the hair of three billion heads. Three billion mouths pressed hard against three billion mouths. Six billion tongues. Sixty billion toes. Three billion hips grinding against three billion hips. Don't stop. My name is Dionysus, and I am the god of humanity. Repeat after me. Nothing in moderation, everything to excess. Nothing in moderation, everything to excess. Debauchery and decadence. Debauchery and decadence. Debauchery and decadence.
6: Friday Night Litany. as if there's nothing better to do with your highly-considered life than fighting through a mob of glitter and testosterone to sit, if you're lucky, at a sticky table, chain-smoking to keep your hands busy and trying not to look somber, and occasionally drinking whenever the zombie waitress graces you with her navel-piercing as if you couldn't find a more masochistic way to waste a perfectly open night of promise. Glaring at college girls in backless push-up lycra, these actresses performing the irony of aloof seduction, Young, working girls working to look even younger as if they intrinsically know the pedophilic nature of men, grouping themselves into little covens of protective charm, casting curses of vanishing charisma on any poor kid brave enough to approach the circle. You return to this place because you're an unrepentant optimist, and you know that at least one of these girls had to make it through the beauty trap Of adolescence with some semblance of a mind and that her appearance will miraculously coincide with that biannual convergence of planets that gives you the miracle of cosmic energy you need to walk up to a random girl and say something that she actually hears. But your optimism fades with the melting makeup of these girls who seem to age by the hour and you squirm to let yourself off the hook, reminding yourself that you're mastering the art of observation. Telling yourself that none of these girls is even remotely dateable, since she wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about half the time, and the other half she'd be looking over your shoulder at the digital frat boy with the nose ring and the cell phone holster and that blank stare that works like a dog whistle for Gen Y chicks. But man, wouldn't you just love to take that one home tonight and dress her up in PJs and brush her angel hair a hundred strokes and sing her a soothing lullaby and tuck her in and rock her softly to sleep and kiss her goodnight on that sparkling, freckled forehead. But your blank stare fools nobody. And you lose the moment, and she floats on by with her blinders down, moving with the slightly awkward animated grace of a Disney princess, leaving you only her wake of strawberry perfume and ultralight smoke and a lingering frustration that you won't be able to put to bed when you finally make it home. There's a gap in this place, deeper than your blind imagination wants to believe invisible and bridgeless. A gap between who you are and who they are. A gap that neither side really wants to cross since it's easier just to drop your quarter in the public binoculars and listen to the beat of the timer and the rhythm of the dancing ticking away at your passing moment of fake proximity. So you throw back that watery, senescent scotch, and you reach the same jaded, feel-good conclusion of a thousand lost Friday nights. That same masturbatory litany you repeat as you run the gauntlet to the door. These girls have no fucking clue what they're missing.
10: in a cherry wood coffin lined in white silk. I'd think about who would come and who would not. What would they say about me? I would imagine all the girls had always wanted me but had been too shy to ask, weeping loudly for their irrevocable loss. And all the schoolyard bullies would beg my dead body forgiveness. And Prince and the Revolution would play Sometimes It Snows in April, which was my favorite song. But even then, I knew that funerals were only temporary stoppages of time. It wouldn't matter if the celebration of my life was the kick-ass event of the season. Even if they had a special page in the high school yearbook devoted just to me, eventually people would stop talking about the funeral, stop talking about the dead guy, I would pass slowly out of memory. My photographs would gather dust. My little brother would inherit my room. And at 16, I had far more potential than accomplishments. No one remembers potential. I'm not ready to die right now, but the idea of immortality still keeps me up nights. The very thought of never dying, never dying, never dying kills me. I have foreseen myself wrapped in white linen arms, crossed across my chest, lying in the sarcophagus, laid in the tomb. That vision is far more comforting than me at 450, having read all the books and learned all the languages and tried every sexual position. There is nothing left but sorrow and loneliness. So even today, I still think about my funeral. And you can bet I'll be watching, so don't you dare bury me in some cheap white pine box. I want my body to be bronzed and displayed in the Smithsonian. I want all my poetry and journals and letters to be published posthumously. I want a full-length Japanese anime movie made depicting my life. My funeral will be my last-ditch effort at validation. All my friends in heaven and hell will be there. I'm talking Hendrix and Hemingway, James Joyce and Janis Joplin. And I don't want them to think I didn't know anybody before I died. You invite everyone I've ever known. I don't care if they loved me or hated me. If heaven's got beers, I'll be drinking right along with my relatives all tanked and weeping and laughing at the same time. And I'll be watching you all quiet dignity, surrounded by the living, still loving you, still trying to hold you up, though you never needed to be held. I'll be watching and remembering each kiss, each word we shared. So if you have to wear black, make it that black evening gown, the one with the slit that goes almost all the way up, because I'll be dancing and singing with you long into the night.
0: All right, here we go again. Got the hardcore poetry fans here. You won't be disappointed either. This is the part of the show I love where I get to kick back and have beer and just listen to the cool feature. These guys are from Chicago. Uh, I met Charlie in Detroit a few years back. He was... uh, with a group called three guys from albany as i recall and that was a lot of fun uh we were just the slam here was just getting started when i met this guy and i thought someday i'm gonna have a place and a stage and a couple of mics and enough people that i can bring this guy and have him do some poetry. Uh, He's performed, for those of you who know SLAM, he's performed at the Green Mill and I believe the New Eurekan and the Cantab on the coast. And uh, his new collaborative partner, Al, has uh, two collections of poetry, I believe, and uh, used to play with uh, the Seven Sons in Chicago, and is the uh, editor of After Hours Literary Magazine. And, uh, okay, that's all I know about these guys, except that this is going to be a lot of fun, so give them a big round of applause. How about retro?
14: begins as a lump in the throat. It finds the thought, and the thought finds the words. Robert Frost. Poets don't draw. They unravel their handwriting and then tie it up again, but differently, Jean Cocteau. Poetry is a kind of meditation that slows me down and brings me back to myself. Allen Ginsberg.
15: The poet cherishes his chagrins and sets his sighs to music. Henry David Thoreau. Now your way is the only way. You're a genius all the time. Jack Kerouac. The truth is such a rare thing. It is delightful to tell it. Emily Dickinson. And I'm out. And together we are Avant Retro with one eye in the future and one foot in the past. Which leaves us right here now in front of you to do some poetry. Which is what we're gonna do. If you think I've gone crazy, try picking a flower from the garden of your neighbor. Charles Bukowski said that. Fuck you, Buke an elegy. Obstinate bastard, living on the edge, you claimed to be an asshole. Probably true. It's what we liked about you, the way you played the role with women, bets and booze as if you'd never stop. And now you're dead. How best to honor you, your life, your work, your kiss my ass attitude. You fuckhead. I stand beside your grave and piss upon it. I salute your cold dead ass
14: with this sonnet. It's quite okay to applaud. Um, Tonight we're actually Reading everything out of this book, which uh, was just, just about, I guess. It was just recently uh, published, and we're kind of proud of it. A uh, publisher saw our performance and saw some beat influences and said, Why don't you guys do a book for us? So uh, we collaborated. It's called Backbeat. Anyway, I'm going to read a little piece on telling the truth. Better to be like Paul Desmond, who never took off his tie, than to lie in the dark high, wearing nothing but a rubber band around your wrist that reminds you that you have forgotten something, that you have surrendered to the loneliness of KY in the dark alone that the sharp edge of truth has cut too close to the bone despite you ripping open your shirt, despite those poetic purges that swirl in the midnight of nightmares black as Chopin. Better to be like Paul Desmond, who never took off his tie or let his saxophone cry, the smooth tone so controlled, phrases that didn't lie, or did they? Where the screams tucked in with his starched white shirt, the collar only loose enough to let him blow, cool. Desmond's demons buttoned up in stiff white cotton, cool, too cool, famous and well-liked, unthreatening in a safe white Oxford. No one names his delirium or cares if he told lies or truths. Better to lie alone in the dark, wearing nothing but a rubber band.
15: There are people in this audience old enough to have exes, so I like to do this poem, which is called "The X." You can switch gender on this if you need to, you know. But for me, I'll just say uh, she's the. Worst kind of monster, made up of old parts of yourself that needed a woman like her and couldn't see disaster looming. Like a bad dream that keeps coming back when you let your guard down, you see her in a dark cafe and shiver. It's like a visit from the grave. You've gone back to your old brand of toothpaste, but you still wear clothes you wore with her and drive the same car. You wonder how far you'll have to go. You want to blame it all on her. Then you want to blame it all on you. In your better moments, you wish her well.
14: Thanks. on that same theme. Um, this, this book, again, I keep talking about the book, but anyway, this is a, it's a memoir and poetry, so there's prose and poetry. And uh, right now, I'm gonna read a little bit of the, the prose to kind of explain the poem. I didn't know that eating 79-cent burritos from Taco Fiesta on South Wabash in Chicago because what I had in my pocket was $2 was beat. I didn't know that my young, just out of college head had been turned inside out, that my self-confidence, my dreams were gone, that being beat would turn who I had been or thought I had been a full 180 degrees to the outside, the blues side, the dark side, the soul side, the go-gotta-go-go go side of a high-speed shuffle rhythm at 3 a.m. on stage with Lefty Diz at the Kingston Mines. I just didn't know that being beat would lead me to the North Side Blues or Chicago's Nighthawks and Wild Turkey and easy women with sad, pouting faces and poems that would pour from my pen more than 10 years later. Though I didn't recognize it as the turning point that would redirect my music and poetry, I had a crippling awareness of what had beaten me, what I couldn't wrestle to the mat, what gnawed at me like a demon ulcer. My spirit from my toes to my cock to my short-circuited brain was beat. I knew that the reason I had rented a furnished transient studio apartment where I peed in the sink to save a trip down the hall to a common bathroom, where the famed, alleged Tylenol killer lived in the next apartment, where I'd light the gas burners and oven of a small stove to shake the winter morning chill. The reason was because shortly after our second wedding anniversary, I found someone else's wet semen in my first wife's panties. This, this was what I knew. Findings on the quest for truth. Truth is an acquired taste, like straight bourbon or anal sex. Truth hides in childbirth, betrayal, bigotry, in an Ornette Coleman improvisation, in a Janis Joplin scream, in the suicides of the great poets who swallowed truth whole and found the taste like dandelion greens. There is no truth if not chewed, scratched, sipped, sniffed, fucked, eyeballed, They say the truth will set you free, or it will fuck you up till you bleed poems, till wisdom strangles your soul, till the love in your heart coughs up black blood and
15: So So what happened was this guy Norb Blyer runs this press. Says, try to write about how you've been influenced by the beat poetic and any contact with the Beats or if you read that stuff. So that's why we've got this sort of mix of things here, and it's new for us because we're used to the old thing of read read the fucking poem. So we're trying to not explain it really, but just it's a there's a little more narrative to this poetry book than poetry books often have. Uh, Anyway. So I'm going along telling about different things that happened, and here we are in my college days as College Park, Maryland, and parties and cultural events and falling in love kept me busy. Dorm life was a psychological shock. It was the first time I had been surrounded by people who had been nowhere and whose sole goal in learning was to get a good job. The guys from the Eastern Shore were solid bigots and would have been happy to take a baseball bat to anybody sitting in at their favorite back-home diner. Interest in the arts was non-existent. Junior year, my buddies and I moved off campus. That probably saved my life because the alienation caused by the boredom of classes and the general dorm environment had me down as often as I was up from the great sex and art I was swimming in. We called our apartment the Bowery because it was a basically a large, dank basement room. Rent was cheap, and we could walk across the tracks to a little store that had a perpetual sale on paps Blue Ribbon beer. I majored in journalism because it offered the most electives. After College Park, I did some graduate school in Ohio. It was more of the same, but with more time in the library to keep up with the seminars. And while in Ohio, this little experience uh, in this poem, um, this is called Campus Politics. You all know what a dashboard Virgin Mary is, right? You know, they come in different sizes. A woman in a plain black dress was sucking a dashboard Virgin Mary when we arrived. The plastic head slipped between her lips, came out, and then went in again to the tune of Inagata De Vida. As she danced and hiked her dress, made little fucking sounds, and pumped her hips. The men were beardless in gray slacks and navy blazers. The women were out of Lord and Taylor, and the drinks and food and dope were free, compliments of Nixon and the GOP, who'd stocked a rented mountain cabin with undercover young Republicans to make it with the college crowd. I'd like to say we all got off that night, but no such luck. Those Lord and Taylor women were all teased and not about to fuck for us. So we drank ourselves into a state of grace and on the way out by the side door, picked up another case and went back to campus, laid down on the lawn, woke up at the crack of dawn, hung over, we staggered home to sleep it off and one week later cast our votes for Humphrey and curse the fates when Nixon won.
14: Uh, sometimes poems are, are just a matter of uh, relating something that happened, they just come to you. All the poets in the room probably have experienced that. Um, there's a, a great poet, award-winning poet, his name is Jimmy Baca, who I had the pleasure Charlie and I both had the pleasure to uh, spend an evening with um, a little over a year ago. Anyway, this is what happened. To Jimmy Santiago Baca in the house tonight. The open mic graffiti poet's posture for the Buddha master in the audience. He listens, applauds, drinks bourbon. But tonight, words swirl around his head like ice cubes in his glass, like updrafts of circling snow outside. He asked me to play, play my saxophone, a song for his brother, the brother who died just winter days ago. Play a song for me, play a song for my brother, my brother who was murdered. There are things in life you cannot get over. My father was murdered. My mother was murdered. And now, my brother, there are things in life you cannot get over. He closes his eyes to say this, kisses his hands, held as in prayer. Faith in the Virgin of Guadalupe, better than the trigger I pulled, the cold blood I shed, angry lives ago. My fingers find the keys, stumble into amazing grace, and spiral into a free fall of blue notes that is a dead brother. There are things in life you cannot get over, things that make this poet's poems. No burning need for an open microphone or polite applause. Only the request for a song this January night.
15: Well, cuts loose, man. This next, oh, uh, well, a simple little poem called Who We Are. The neighbor's retarded boy sits in the back seat of the family car, ever so gently, love me now, rocking. A cold wind off the lake rustles the leave. love me yeah. now leaves. A dog's bark echoes through an empty house of love me, now. love
14: me now. The
15: grocery store clerk smiles her have a nice day, love me now smile. The cop on the corner waves now. the kids across the love me now avenue and behind closed doors up and down this trim lawn tree lined street. A hundred intimate love me now gestures over love love me me now kitchen tables and love me now tricycles in love me now family rooms sing in thousand part harmony the singular unbending universal love Love me me now anthem of who we are.
14: Okay, fast forward (laughs) to the second wave. Uh, (laughs) This is a long book. I'll just read a little bit into this poem. Demons dressed in clinical depression moved into our home and covered all the windows, all the art of our life, all our laughter with heavy purple muslin. You don't have to live in an alley to be hopeless, lost, beaten. Suicide. Today, I read my wife's suicide note. Her letter spoke softly, gently caressing. All the love she had held back was saved for this one letter. As if with this last kiss, she could erase the pain of living, the pain of leaving, and walk quietly away. My words could not lift the black shroud, could not dull the blade nor flush the pills. And I cry when truth lays death naked. When I stand impotent in the shadow of love is not enough.
15: rehearsing and getting together a playlist I was always, always wondering if you should read that poem <laughs> or if I'll bum everyone out oh a couple of poems from the different sides of love you know there's different sides one from the more physical carnal side let's say that summer I wanted to tear your skin off and wear you I understood cannibals when I saw you naked. And from the other side, that's a little more, let's say, spiritual. Lover poem. The basement kitchen stood up straight and tall, but you stooped again and again. Getting out the dinner things, like some great descending bird, all grace and form, with eyes that see forever Pass the simple, solid things you touch and place upon the table or the roaring flame with Buddha care and reverence. You stir the boiling pots, mix the secret spices, take the bread and place it on the rack. Stretch and breathe and call to me whose poor soul is spotted with countless imperfections to feast and be cleansed in your holy candlelight.
14: Okay. I have a poem in here that's a longer poem, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's about guardian angels, and it's called Angels Got the Blues. It's a whole bunch of different angels that kind of follow me around, but this one is the little sensual one, but remember, it's kind of allegorical. So, My guardian angel says to know me, fuck me slow as she crawls over me, her pussy like a wet tongue licking my stomach. Her mouth against my cheek, chilling me with muted trumpet voice. Fuck me slow, bite my apple, taste my salt. Don't rush my song, inhale me like a Dominican cigar, like Mexican weed, taste each breath, smell the earth in me. I am the mountains of Utah, the surf of Cozumel, the steam rising from Chicago subways. I am crystal white, winter morning. My guardian angel says, fuck me slow. Yeah.
15: This poem's a bun. Those of you who do anything with haiku have run into the idea of a High hi-bun. bun's where you mix prose with haikus. And um, yeah, it's a New York City poem called Downtown in the City of Duck's Blood. Three days on the coast, three days in Patterson, New Jersey, talking poetry to junior high school. Ghetto kids walking the streets of closed down mill town Patterson, meditating on the Great Falls. Crossing the river for a night on the town, oh, ghost of William Carlos Williams, oh, spirit of Ginsburg, oh, tank top beauties of Washington Square, braless in the heat, oh, congas and guitars, oh, city of a million bleeding ducks and backed up sewers, as Lorca called it. Christopher Street, tattooed men with three days growth, holding hands. Strolling the East Village after taking the path train to lower Manhattan from Hoboken. Hoboken, my God, if these people in black only knew, and in fact they probably do, by the way we look to street signs for direction, the color of our clothes. Oh, fashion, thy downtown name is Midnight. East Village, mannequins with nipples in black denim. Amid subway rumble and yellow cab honk, the ghost of Dustin Hoffman's Ratso Rizzo skulks across Broadway. Hey, I'm walking here. The cry of me, the cry of I am, straight out of Midnight Cowboy, walking against the light and into the park without a glance at the woman with orange hair and six rings through her lower lip, four in each ear and a dozen plastic necklaces, cascading in a rainbow of beads. Corner grocery. Corner grocery. The Asian counterman greets a customer by name. In the public garden at 6th Street and Avenue B, a woman with gray hair matted in ragged skirt and sweater, bedraggled, pushing a shopping cart among the flowers, alternately mutters and shouts profanities, cursing the rich, cursing the mayor, cursing the city, cursing government in general, and no one in particular, as dog walkers with plastic bags give her wide berth. Two gentlemen in berets discuss perennials and play a slow game of chess inside the gazebo beside the three-story tall structure of found wood, baby dolls, and dangling merry-go-round horses. Nightfall, a sliver of moon in the skyscraper window.
14: this is a poem about my blues days hanging out at blues bars and had a lot of friends and that's what this poem is about baby don't you want to (laughs) go X-ray blue borrows cymbals, tapes his drum kit together, M.C.s the Monday night blues jam, bestows on me a blues name, Bossa Nova, tattooed, dark glasses, ladies man, olive skin, thick lipped hustler, knows every musician, night crawler, dealer, knows the game.
10: don't be mean we don't have to be mean because remember no matter where you go there you are